The reading is from Luke 18, 1 to 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Thank you very much indeed for your welcome. It's a great joy to be back here today and for us to be able to share together in God's Word. And uh, we've just read that story which Jesus told, and that's going to be our subject for um, this little talk. Now, as Mark said, we are in Luke's Gospel for our series up to Easter, and we've given it the title Think Again because... As we begin to understand the kingly rule of God, which Luke's Gospel uh, expounds for us, we begin to realise how different his priorities and his values are from the conventions of our society and from the presuppositions that we all have uh, in our own individual lives. Last time I said I think one uh, good title for this uh, Gospel might be The Upside Down Kingdom. But actually, it's life the right way up. It's life as it is meant to be that Jesus is teaching about in these many different parables in Luke and that Luke weaves into the fabric of this wonderful gospel. There are in the gospel of Luke about a dozen parables which are unique to Luke. And this little story, this rather strange story, is one of them. Now, that final sentence of our reading is rather haunting, very challenging, isn't it? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He talks about the Son of Man, which is, of course, his favorite title, Jesus' favorite title for himself. And this business about the Son of Man coming has been running in the Gospel from the preceding chapter, chapter 17, verse 20, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, come to Jesus and they ask him, when will the kingdom of God come? And the answer that Jesus gives them is on two levels. He says, firstly, it's already here. The kingdom of God is within you, he says. And wherever during Jesus' ministry, men and women recognized him as the Son of God, the Son of Man, and bowed the knee to him as their king and their God, the kingdom of God was ruling in that person's life. So Jesus says, well, as I have come as the king, the kingdom is here with you and within you. But there is a future level of fulfillment as well. 
when, as the uh, famous uh, Hallelujah Chorus says, all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the fulfillment of the new creation, when the kingdom of God comes in its completion. Now it's to that ultimate appearance of Christ as king and judge that Jesus is alluding in verse 8 when he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We're meant to recall the purpose statement of the first verse of our chapter. Let's just go back to that and see that Jesus told this, this uh, parable to his disciples to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Give up on what? Well, on praying, of course, yes. Certainly Jesus is teaching the importance of prayer. That first verse says that we should always be praying. But the reference is wider than that. What sort of church, what sort of Christian community will he find when he returns? Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are full of hope, who are living eagerly and expecting God's kingdom to come to its fruition? Or will that bring, or will it rather be a sort of faith that's evaporated so that the church will be virtually the same as the world around it, culturally conditioned and spiritually anemic. People will have lost heart, perhaps, given up, because they've given up thinking Christianly, especially in this area of power. And it's a big temptation for us in the 21st century church. We look around at the church in the West, we see it on the back foot in so many ways, we see the message of Christ being screened out from our culture in different experiences of life. And it's very easy for us to think that all the power resides there within the cultural pressures of our generation. And we need to have time to think again and to get God's perspective on what this parable is teaching. Now, like most of Jesus' parables, there's an unexpected twist in the story. It's designed to focus our minds and change our hearts to put us the right way up as we start to think God's thoughts. So let's just look at the parable for the next few moments together. Uh, firstly, it, there is um, something in the parable that seems so obvious. It starts in verses 2 and 3 with this picture of the so-called unjust judge. Jesus said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. You could see that being played out in many a community in Israel, doubtless in Jesus' day, as you can across the world in our days still. And in that way in which Jesus so quickly focuses our mind and draws things to our attention, the two characters are polar opposites. The judge has all the power and privilege. The widow, none. In principle, that is according to Jewish law, she should expect that power to be used to secure justice for her. But this judge is less than promising. The phrases that describe him in verse 2, he neither feared God nor cared what people thought or didn't fear man, were phrases used in the first century world to describe someone who was thoroughly corrupt, 
There was no superior authority in his life, neither divine nor human. That had no impact on his attitudes or his actions. The Old Testament law code, of course, had a special care for the widow, for the alien, for the orphan. But this judge is prepared to sweep it all aside. The two great commands, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself, he routinely dismisses. He neither fears God nor man. And so it's no good to appeal to his better nature, because he seems to have had none. By contrast, the widow is total vulnerability. She has an adversary, but she has no one to defend her. No man in her family to represent her, presumably. Certainly no money to buy legal support. She's totally alone. She is the ultimate picture of status deprivation. And she's probably being ruthlessly exploited by her opponent. Do you remember how Jesus criticised even Pharisees who he said devour widows' houses? She was under some sort of pressure, we don't know what, but she was on her own with no one to help her. But she kept coming to him. And you can imagine that her friends, if there were any, would say to her, Oh, why? What's the point? He's never going to take any action, is he? It's uh, the sensible thing would be to give up. Don't waste your time on it. Conserve your energies. You're never going to get anywhere. It's all so obvious. Now the story at this point of this exploited woman in a corrupt society without a single hope, a story that's a classic story in human history, this point the story starts to spin. At this point it begins to turn. And Jesus says, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, So if there's something that seems very obvious in the story, secondly, Jesus shows us there's something we've overlooked, and that is what is going on in the judge's mind. That is unseen, and so the big temptation is to ignore it completely and to base all your thinking on what you do see. And that, of course, is a very natural human reaction. Inwardly, however, Jesus says there is a dialogue going on. You see what the judge is saying to himself. Even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. It's fascinating, isn't it? Nothing in the judge's attitude towards God or towards other people or towards the woman changes. He's still totally self-consumed. But it is that very priority which changes his behaviour. Jesus says, for some time this has been going on. She keeps bothering me, the judge says. And here is this totally vulnerable woman who has a totally unexpectedly vulnerable judge in her sights. That translation, attack me, various modern translators have tried to get it right. Some say, wear me out, which is, I think, a bit feeble. One paraphrase says, give me a black eye. It's a metaphor of shame and embarrassment that he's facing. And is this fearless, macho judge going to allow himself to be cornered and slugged by the least powerful, the most vulnerable in society? 
she'll keep on wearing him down and the game isn't worth it so he decides I'll give her what she wants sheer persistence wins her case now in verse 6 the Lord who is the son of man whose return will light up the sky from one end to another when he comes in glory he gives to us this understanding of the parable and of course it's an understanding that is built upon the contrast between the judge and God so over the page at verse 6 the Lord said listen to what the unjust judge says and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones this is one of those so much more arguments that Jesus often employs in his teaching Um, and so here he is showing us that The force of the application is that we need to stop looking at things from an outward appearance only and begin to reckon on what is going on in the mind of God. What we overlook is the character of the unseen God. See, as soon as we start to say, does God really care any longer? Will he really hear our prayers? Can we trust him to keep his promises? As soon as we start to think like that because of the pressures of the Uh, life around us and of the negation of the gospel and God's truth well what we're actually doing is evacuating the word God of all its biblical meaning this is a parable of total contrast in place of the corrupt judge we have a loving heavenly father and in place of the unknown insignificant widow God puts us his people described in verse 7 as his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. It's one of those Hebraisms that simply means all the time, constantly in every situation. Where God's people are opposed by the world and the flesh and the devil, they are crying out to him for his righteousness to be revealed and for his glory to be made known. And so he defines the members of God's community as those who pray his chosen ones who pray day and night. And the implication from the story is, is that tedious to God? Is that bothersome to him? It's a ludicrous idea, isn't it? Our continual coming to God doesn't weary him. He doesn't keep putting us off, as Jesus says. It's not some sort of celestial call center when you come to pray that says your call really matters to us, but unfortunately we can't answer it at the moment. No, he loves to hear our prayers because that is what proves and expresses the reality of the relationship that God has brought us into with himself through Christ. And you know that you belong to God's people when you cry out to him, when you pray to him. Because that faith in the essential character of God, his perfect justice and his limitless compassion prompts us to keep presenting our needs, the enigmas that we can't solve, the problems and difficulties of our world and of our lives. And if we forget the character of God and start to to judge God by what we see, then of course we will give up praying and sooner or later we'll give up acting, active believing. But once we see that God's relationship to us is the polar opposite of that of the judge, then verse 8 suddenly comes alive for us, doesn't it? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. 
However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What now seems so obvious? Why are we God's people? Well, because by his grace, he's determined to bring every one of us, a vast company from every tribe and kindred and nation, into his eternal kingdom. Now, is he going to abandon us on the way? Or are our adversaries going to be able to overcome us? Now, the obvious answer in the parable is that we may think that that will happen if we simply look at what's going on around us. But that persistent prayer, opening the door of our need to God, is the way that we express our steadfast faith in his ultimate power. The power of the living God of grace and truth and justice and mercy. And it gives his own personal authority. Jesus gives his authority here to what he says. I tell you, he will act in justice. He will meet his people's needs. He will answer their prayers. And he will do it quickly, which doesn't mean immediately. But at the very right moment, the first moment in which it is a part of his purposes to move out in love and compassion to his people. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's not quite so obvious, is it? I think what he's saying is that the only way to keep going and the only way to keep being useful to God is to keep actively trusting. And the only way to keep trusting is to keep praying day and night, relating every situation, every aspect of our lives, every department of our activity to God's perfect plan. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the parable teaches us that the Christian life is a life of faith, built not on what we see, but on what God says. That the power lies not ultimately with us or with any other human being, but with the God who is the creator, the God of righteousness and truth and justice, whose kingdom will prevail and whose son will return in power and glory as king of kings and lord of lords. And here, in the Palace of Westminster, where God has pleased to put you as his servant, his representative, or in any other part of the world, uh, wherever God may send us, we're called upon to find faith in our hearts in this God. However intractable the problems may seem, however much the occasion may seem to deny the truth, it is a life of faith. That is the test of faith. To go on trusting God's word, to be grounded in his promises, and to keep believing. And that would give to us this confidence, which Jesus clearly wants his disciples to share, that they should always pray and not give up. Later, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Ephesian church, encouraged their prayers by reminding them that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And so he concludes, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
Let's pray to him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will reorient our thinking about where the power lies. Thank you that you are working out your purposes in your world, that the Christ who died and rose and ascended will come, the Son of Man will return, and that eternal kingdom of truth and righteousness will come in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray that we might be found faithful in our generation. We pray that as you look into our hearts, you would kindle that flame of faith, that it may grow as we feed on your word, that it may uh, encourage and strengthen us to serve you day by day in our lives. And we thank you that you are such a gracious, loving Heavenly Father, the very polar opposite of the unjust judge. Please help us to trust your promises and so to walk in your truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.